Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. You can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, GoodPods, Pandora. Whatever you listen to your podcast, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As far as social media, you can find me on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1, on TikTok as Let's Talk Micro, and on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, follow me on social media, leave any feedback, any possible topic suggestions. These are always welcome and appreciated. And of course, if you subscribe to the podcast, please go ahead and leave a review. That's always very helpful to the podcast. So definitely stay tuned to social media. I always like to post pictures of organisms and give any updates as to when the next episode is coming out. And if you have any, also if you have any podcast suggestions, you can always email those at letstalkmicro at outlook.com. And if you haven't checked out the previous episode, go ahead and do so. It was a great interview with Lindsay Donner and Marnie Imhoff of the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And they talk about some online unknowns that they design for their microbiology class. I mean, I've done a few episodes about online teaching and how educators have to adapt, especially when the pandemic hit, you know, uh, teaching was done remotely. So, right, I talked about how we teach micro, those skills. How do we do that? And one thing that's always a big part of a microbiology class are unknowns, right? So you get a broth. And then you plate it, you do a Gramps thing, you do biochemicals, and you properly identify the organism. So how does that apply to online teaching? So it was very interesting to find out what they did, you know, how they applied this concept of unknowns to an online format. And also it was very interesting to find out how the students did. And they also have incorporated this to in-person teaching, just like a lot of this online teaching tools you know, they work well for the students. So now that we are back on a, you know, students are back in the classroom, all these tools that have been implemented as a, you know, like a supplemental tool for learning. But it seems that the students did well. So it was a great episode. Check it out if you haven't already. So today's episode is about food microbiology, right? So we know, especially those of us that work in the field, and we know that there are some microbes in food especially, right, maybe some of you have gram stain uh, uh, yogurt, and you have seen the gram-positive rods, you have seen gram-positive cocci, you know that uh, yogurt has some uh, species of strep, you know, there's also lactobacillus in it. So maybe you have done that. So in this episode, we talk about other um, food items that have microbes. So it was very interesting. It featured a converse, you know, it's a conversation with Dr. Andrea Princey, she has already been a guest on two episodes, great episodes about breakpoints, a great episode about respiratory cultures. So I definitely invite you to check those out if you haven't already. And this one is just about food microbiology. So we learn about there's a, you know, those of you that maybe are vegan and try some, some vegan food, like, you know, you see like uh, vegan nuggets. And so there's a popular food item from a popular brand, and she talked about how Fusarium plays a role in that. So it was definitely very interesting. And also finding about 
Enterococcus and how it is, you know, it is seen in a specific food item. So overall, it was very, very informative, very educational. And as always, it's always great, you know, chatting with Dr. Prinzi. So I hope you enjoyed. Let's go ahead and listen to it. So on today's episode, we are you know, talking about something a little bit different. So we are talking about microbes and your grocery list. And this is actually from an article titled Microbes That Span the Clinical Lab and Your Grocery List. And this was published on January 25th of 2021 in the American Society of Microbiology. So with me today, I have a guest that she's been here before. It's always great to have her. So with me, I have Dr. Andrea Prinzi. Dr. Prinzi, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hi, Louise. Thanks for having me again. As always, great to have you. My pleasure. Um, so you have introduced yourself before, but for the audience and any listeners, can you do a quick introduction? Yeah, we'll just do a short and sweet. I'm Andrea Prinzi. I'm a clinical microbiologist by training. I worked in pediatric clinical microbiology for a long time, uh, have a master's in public health and epidemiology, and recently did a PhD in clinical and translational science. And now I work as a medical science liaison uh, in an in vitro diagnostics company called BioMario. Uh, so once again, welcome. So uh, this is definitely a very interesting article. And you know, once I, after I started the podcast and I've been immersing myself more and you know, reading articles and journals. So from what I have seen, you know, this is some, a little bit different from what you normally publish. I have, you know, you can go talk about respiratory cultures and, and antimicrobials. And so what led you to write this? So if you, if you look through all the blog articles I've written with ASM, I, you know, I tend to focus, like you said, on uh, topics around diagnostics in clinical micro or um, antimicrobial resistance or respiratory cultures, things like that. But every once in a while, I go on like a public health deep dive, uh, which really is like a, a love of mine. And so sometimes that's about vaccines or like the history of certain organisms or things, you know, micro microbiology history, things like that. Um, this one, <laughs> this actually came from, I was on Twitter one day and I saw a conversation between um, a couple clinicians or microbiologists on Twitter talking about this meat substitute that they were buying or eating that was made of fungus. And I thought, God, you know, that's so interesting. I, of course, know that we use microbes in food production, but I don't know as much about it as I would like. And I think this really ties into like the One Health idea, which I also write quite a bit about. So I ended up going down this rabbit hole and then decided to write about it. <laughs> Yeah, and then and we'll continue uh, talking more about that. But I, I as far as yeah, the the meat substitutes, yeah, that particular one, yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, it was like you know fungal based. So, um, so yeah, crazy. <laughs> Can you go ahead and do an overview of the article? Yeah. So this is really just a. It started like I said with this topic of uh, meat alternatives. Um, this one in particular, which I can touch on, but um made of fungus. And then as I, you know, started reading more about that, I'm like, well, what about, you know, what kind of other organisms are being used in food production uh, that also can cause disease in humans? And, and what does that relationship look like? So it starts with talking about uh, fusarium mold and how that's being used to create this meat substitute, uh, which is a product called corn, Q-U-O-R-N. You can find it in your freezer aisle at your grocery store if you're interested. 
Um, and then moves into uh, using yeast and other bacteria for brewing beer, things like that. And then uh, finally talks about enterococcus and the use of enterococcus in uh, food production, particularly things like cheese, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, in- indeed it was. And um, so, yeah, it wasn't, you know, we definitely, most of us were definitely aware of, you know, like yogurt, that's like the most basic uh, food that, you know, that it has microbes and, you know, it's always fun, like doing the little gram stain just to, to see what you find. And I was definitely surprised about the enterococcus. At the same time, I wasn't because, you know, based on, you know, the source and so what, but I wasn't aware of this. And definitely, like I mentioned with the, with the meat substitute, it's, and a lot of the stuff, you know, like, a, I would say about three years ago, I went vegan, like for a full year. Yeah, it was a great yeah. experience, and uh, hopefully, I can do it again one one day. It's just you know, it's very time consuming, at least for me, because you have to prepare a lot of food and not that many choices to eat at restaurants. Uh-huh. Unless, of course, you know, if you definitely like a lot of salads, and and you can find definitely dishes around. But yeah, it was it was very time consuming for me. But I was surprised to see like how many products out there there were. So it was just. Sometimes I think some people might have that idea that 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 going vegan, you know, it's all about vegetables, but there's a lot of stuff out there. So, yep, they get very creative with some of this substitute material. Yes, they definitely do. So, you, know, you mentioned fusarium, and I think you know it would be good for the audience to learn a little bit more about it. You know, typically in labs, we we don't especially when they get very large, you know, it gets a little compartmentalized. So you have like its own separate mycology session and your AFB section and your bacteriology section. So even though we might know a little bit about moles, you know, it'll be good for the audience. So can you talk about Fusarium? Yeah. So Fusarium can be a really aggressive pathogen, but this really depends on the patient population. So it's a, it's a mold that's ubiquitous in the environment. You can find it in water, soil, air. Um, There's been many species identified over the years. I think over 50 species have been identified. Can cause all sorts of disease in plants, animals, and humans. But in humans, it really is an opportunistic pathogen. Um, It's primarily going to cause disease in immunosuppressed patients or or those that are undergoing some sort of treatment that uh, keeps the immune system from functioning normally. Um, I think most often you're seeing Fusarium solani, so that causes keratitis or disseminated disease. And disseminated disease, or when the the mold kind of, I, I guess, breaks off, for lack of a better word, disseminates throughout the bloodstream, that is a very serious, uh, serious disease and has a high fatality rate. Um, usually how that's occurring is the through a portal of entry, like the airways or skin or mucosal membranes, again, in patients that are you know, have like leukemia or neutropenia, something like that. Um, an interesting thing about Fusarium is that it's a mold that we see hematogenous spread in. So you can actually um, get this to grow in, in a blood culture, in a fungal blood culture, when normally, you know, other molds are a lot harder to get uh, out of a blood culture. Uh, typically, you want to go to the source of where the infection is, you know, like get a biopsy of the lung and get, you know, get the mold out of there. But Fusarium, we see it um, causing disseminated disease, which is very interesting. Um, venenatum or venenatum, I'm not really sure what, 
which is the correct pronunciation because outside of this article, I'm really not terribly familiar with it. Um, that's the one that's being used for this meat substitute. And it doesn't seem to cause clinical disease in humans, at least as far as I could tell from the literature, um, which obviously makes it a good candidate for food production. Um, yes. So so definitely just to recap, so it, it, it's when species of fusarium that cause disease are typically in immunocompromised patients. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So let's, so now that, you know, you mentioned that it's, it's used as a meat substitute. So can you elaborate? So how that works? Sure. So I think the history of how this came about is really interesting and then, you know, feeds into the production in the modern day. Um, but what happened was there was this gentleman in the UK named Lord Rank who started what was called this Green Revolution in the 60s. And this was really inspired by uh, food shortages, population growth, and the fact that conventional farming really wasn't able to keep up with the demand at the time. So it kind of inspired um, him and others to think kind of creatively about how else we could be getting food. So I guess he had a, a bunch of scientists uh, working for him that he sent out, you know, all over the world. And they went out and collected over 3000 soil organisms uh, from all over the world and found that Fusarium uh, venenatum might be a good candidate for this. Uh, it was actually found in a field in Buckinghamshire in the UK. And when they kind of, you know, played with it a bit and um, explored its uses more, they found that it actually makes this high protein, high fiber food. And that's where we got um, what we see today, which is this like corn Q-U-O-R-N product that I've mentioned, right? Um, so how they make this, it's actually, you could find this on their website or in some of the publications they have, but the company explains that they have these, uh, at any given time in the production, they have these two chambers that are each 50 meters high. Uh, each chamber contains 150,000 liters of media. Uh, that's equivalent to 40,000 gallons or 200 hot tubs worth of media. Uh, so a ton of media in these chambers. And they've got the organisms in there and all the, the products that they need to divide and grow. And so this process uh, produces 300 kilograms per hour of biomass. And that's equivalent to one butchered cow. Uh, so that's per hour. Uh, and there's a thousand hours needed per batch. So they can crank out a ton of biomass in a pretty short amount of time. Uh, and then after this process is done, the organism is heat killed and you're left with all these individual filaments of fungi that are just kind of, you know, like a stack of filaments, basically. It doesn't really look much like any sort of meat product. Uh, and so then they go in and they bind it together with egg white protein to make this material that looks like meat. It looks a lot like meat, it makes it kind of spongy and, and meat-like. Um, and so studies on kind of the nutrition level for this product are really interesting. I mean, it's across the board, it's really cited as this low fat, high protein, high fiber product. Uh, the only thing I found that I thought was interesting is that there's a pretty high RNA content in this product after it's made, uh, just because the fungal biomass originally contains 10% RNA, and that is reduced a bit in the rest of the processing that happens after the original biomass is made, but it's still quite a bit. And um, some of the literature says, you know, excessive RNA consumption leads to increased uric acid, which could re uh, lead to increased risk of gout. 
Um, but overall, they've shown like positive impact on cholesterol, sugar, insulin levels. <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, the only other thing that I found that I thought was interesting was this 2018 study uh, that was published in a Journal of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, um, just documenting all of the adverse reactions that had been recorded from the use of this product. And so overall, there were uh, it was like over 1700 adverse reactions. Those are all self-reported. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but allergic reactions when they did occur happened pretty quickly. So like within four hours and 312 of the respondents. Um, and, and interestingly, and a bit scary, one reaction was fatal. Um, and I, I did find some um, additional literature that it explained that after that fatal reaction, the company really um, was responsible for explaining a bit more on their packaging, what mycoprotein actually is. So I think, you know, there's a lot of like fungal allergies and sensitivities out there and the uh, general public may not know what mycoprotein is. And so now I think their labeling says, Hey, mycoprotein means this is fungus means this is made out of mold, um, and does have elements of that in it. So just be aware that what you're consuming might have, um, might maybe spark some allergies or, or something like that. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that was so interesting from the way that the process and everything. And it's it's good. Yeah, I mean, not everyone might not, especially, you know, using terms like that, uh, the general public definitely, they see mycoprotein and they might not think or know what it is. So it's good that they specify now. I mean, I think about that a lot. I'm like, I wonder how many people, I mean, really, in the general public, how many people would know that mycoprotein means this is made from fungus? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, so as far as, you know, the article, let's talk about uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Uh, we definitely in the lab, we are familiar with it and we have seen it and and we know that it's used in the process of beer fermentation, at least most of us, I think. So it says in the article that the beer fermentation process can be completed without the help of some gram-negative and gram-positive bacteria. Can you talk more about that? Sure. I, you know, I have just kind of a simple answer for this because I'm not going to pretend like I'm a beer brewing master, but I do have a couple friends that brew which have talked to me about how interesting it is when you mix up uh, adding different microorganisms, how the flavor profiles change. So I think specifically for like sour beers, um, lactic acid bacteria really help in like acidifying it more. And so that, I don't know, it kind of gives rise to flavors and aromas that you're not getting you know, when you're just using yeast alone. Um, and so I, you know, I don't know, maybe it's not fair to say the brewing process wouldn't totally be complete without bacteria. Um, you know, you probably could certainly exclude bacteria. I don't know, maybe a brewer could correct me on this, but I think it certainly changes the flavor profile. And so I think that's interesting too, depending on what you're going for, you add uh, different bacterial uh, strains. Okay. I mean, that, that definitely that can make sense. I mean, I, I read about that, you know, bacteria and using uh, like things like cheese and, you know, they talk about like giving it like a nutty flavor or, or that kind. So that, that would make sense. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. And I have, I've also known people that, that make their own beer. So, yeah. Um, I'm in Colorado. So that's like all we, all everybody does out here. Oh, is really? Own beer. <laughs> <laughs> Me excluded. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's 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 right. It's a time-consuming process, from what I understand. Like it takes a while for for you get to that point, you know, to that end product. Yeah, it's a whole whole art. Yeah. 
Okay. Um. So let's talk about Enterococcus faecalis. This is one that definitely in the lab we are aware of. Um, as a medical lab scientist, you know, I definitely see it a lot in, in many cultures from, you know, from urine cultures, we see it in wounds. Uh, so we're definitely familiar with this organism. And I think in my opinion, as a medical lab scientist, you know, it, it, it keeps us sharp in the way that it likes to, you know, you learned about that classic gamma hemolysis, but sometimes you encounter a beta hemolytic hemolysis when it grows on PEA, it can be beta hemolytic. So it's very interesting in my eyes, at least, and especially when in the prior era before Molditov, if, that we used to do a lot of biochemicals. I, I believe you know it kept us sharper, you know, keeping all that knowledge in check. So, can you talk about its use in the food industry? Yeah, this was the one that actually really surprised me the most. Um, I mean, exactly like what you're saying. We know that intercoccus fecalis infasium cause really serious disease, right? And are super challenging in the clinical lab. I was smiling when you're talking about that because it was always the organism that tripped everybody up on the bench the most before we ever used Maldi. Um, but in food, you know, it's a, it's a lactic acid bacteria. So generally speaking, the food industry likes to use lactic acid bacteria because it's, they tend to, uh, they're really tolerant to salts and acid and they help preserve, preserve different types of food. So, you know, we know that lactobacillus and things like that are used, but um, I guess I just had never thought about the fact that enterococcus uh, is a lactic acid organism. Um, and it's so specifically it's used for ripening and aroma development of traditional cheeses and sausages, particularly in the Mediterranean. Um, and there was, I think I, in this, uh, ASM blog article, I cited this paper from, um, 2002 is from the international journal of food microbiology. And it was called effective enterococcus facium on microbiological physiochemical and sensory characteristics of Greek feta cheese. And the paper is just really, it's kind of funny because the authors are just like doting on this organism and like how wonderful it is. And it says, you know, Enterococcus facium strains positively affected taste, aroma, color, structure of the cheese. It improved overall sensory profile. You know, the study emphasizes, quote, technological significance of Enterococcus facium strains. And the authors support their use in manufacturing a feta cheese. <laughs> I just thought it was so interesting. Um, but if you, you know, you kind of do a deep dive into the production of feta cheese, Enterococcus is a huge uh, player it there. It's really important. And feta cheese, huh? Uh-huh. Oh. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> you know, I like going back to what you said about tripping people in the lab. You know, that's, I do remember that. And it's just, yeah, especially, yeah, sometimes, you know, it, it's the way that, you know, the, the morphology and especially when it's coming small, sometimes, you know, people might confuse it with like a clock negative staff or sometimes even you, the catalase can the be confusing. Ca catalase can be positive. Yeah, or the negative, catalase, and that's right? something that I like to talk to students about of how that that weak positive reaction, that delay reaction, you know, it's considered a negative, and to keep that in mind because if they're doing some sort of unknown, they start with the catalase, and they call that a positive, they're gonna go in a whole different direction. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so it's definitely yeah, it was it was challenging in the lab. I do remember that. And every now and then, you know, you think, oh, it looks like enterococcus. And then it's end it ends up being uh, like a gamma hemolytic lactobacillus. So every now and then mm -hmm. that can happen as well. So 
Yeah, definitely. Molotov has helped with that. I mean, as always, it's always good if you're in doubt to the audience, you know, let it be a, if you're currently working on the bench or if you're a student, always make use of that gram stain and that, that can help you from solving that problem to solve that problem. Absolutely. So going back to enterococcus, so any benefits of, of having it, you know, a food containing enterococcus, any benefits, any pros and cons? Well, I think, I think with food microbiology, which of course is not my specialty, but what I find to be interesting is that there are pros and cons, right? Like it's not, I always just think strictly clinically and, you know, I'm like enterococcus and anything probably isn't great, but, um, you know, like the literature on this really, really supports its use here or there. And so I, I did kind of a deeper dive too into if there were any studies about, you know, should we be worried about ingesting this organism? You know, how, what kind of impact does that have on our normal gastrointestinal, you know, flora? Could we be passing some resistance mechanisms, things like that? And so some of the pros to think about is that Enterococcus and, and organisms like it, um, they actually produce these antimicrobial compounds called bactericins. And so those are used for preservation of food products, but it could potentially, and some of the literature out there suggests that it could replace antibiotic use in food um, because these are capable of, of uh, you know, killing other organisms we're not interested in, in having. And so that would be an interesting concept if we could get away from using you know, antibiotics in our food supply and using something like that, that could be interesting. Um, but what's important to think about is that the, the presence of enterococci, for example, in the guts of animals that are getting slaughtered for food, um, contamination happens during that slaughter process. And so lots and lots of these types of organisms have been found in high quantities in these animals. Um, and the organisms themselves are really, like I said, they're resistant to things like heat. So they're not really killed in some of these processes that happen after slaughter. And so there's concern about the transfer of drug resistant strains when we ingest these. And we know that enterococci can be naturally transmitted from food to the human GI tract. But the question would be, how long do they stay there once we eat them? And are they able to kind of pass on any sort of resistance mechanisms or information or anything like that? And so there's a couple studies that I cite in the article that I thought were interesting, three studies. Um, the first one was from 1999, and they looked at the ingestion of vancomycin-resistant enterococcus uh, strains from chicken, and the colonization in humans lasted for only around 20 days. So it kind of seems like a long time, but really, um, it's pretty transient. Uh, there was another study from 2002 that demonstrated that probiotic enterococcus facium strains could not be recovered from feces after 31 days. So again, seemed to hang out for about a month and then disappeared from the flora. And then there was another study uh, from 2001 that also demonstrated that facium uh, from food could not be isolated after 35 days. So between these three studies, it looks like you know, no more than 35 days is this organism hanging out in, in our gut flora after we consume it. But in all those studies, all the volunteers were healthy. And so it kind of begs the question, like, what about immunosuppressed patients or patients exposed to antibiotics? You know, would these organisms then be able to colonize further or would they hang out in the flora longer in those kinds of patients? And so you just have to think about like, balancing pros and cons of things like probiotics or, you know, organism use and food supply. And um, really the question that's ongoing is can these strains acquired from food 
transfer resistance mechanisms to the enterococci that are living in our human guts, because we have them there. Um, it's possible, but the research really doesn't support it one way or the other yet. Um, and so it's really just like, I know we face this sometimes in pediatrics where, you know, probiotics are being given and it, it's just really balancing risk to immunocompromised individuals with the benefits um, of food and medical industries. You know, what kind of benefits could be offered by giving those products? And is it really worth it in a patient that is severely immunosuppressed? So it's just kind of this balancing risk um, situation, if you will. Okay. Yeah, I see. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, and definitely... Um... I will be thinking about enterococcus the next time that I have feta cheese. I was, I was, I was just surprised by that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, is there anything else that you want to add about this, uh, Dr. Princey? Well, I just think, you know, other than just the interesting little factoids in this piece, um, you know, the end, the end idea here, or the overarching theme would be thinking about One Health and the fact that um, I think historically we've always just thought about human lives and animal lives and the environment is like very different things, separate things. But it's super important to think about how organisms and things like resistance mechanisms move between the environment, our food, our animals, not only like the things we're eating, but the things we're interacting with or living with or engaging with and how that all impacts things like antimicrobial resistance. And so I think looking at an article like this is fun, but then also kind of makes you think about, wow, you know, I think there's some statistic out there that's like, um, you know, animals that are being essentially uh, raised for food or within the agriculture industry, there's like four times the use of antibiotics as there is in humans or something like that. Um, and so just thinking about, you know, what that means for us as we consume these products or as we live near animals or engage, you know, with the environment that the animals are living in and that we're living in, like, how does that all play together? Um, and what kind of things, what kinds of questions should we be asking when we're thinking about preventing the spread and acquisition of AMR? Yes, I definitely agree with that. And as I've been, you know, like I'm currently taking some classes and definitely been learning more about, about uh, antimicrobial resistance. And like you said, you know, about the food, the water, the, the antibiotic use in the animal industry. So it definitely, it brings a lot of questions. Um, yeah. So, well, uh, Dr. Prince, you know, once again, you know, this has been so informative and it was so, you know, I have learned so much. So thank you for taking the time to come into Let's Talk Micro. Yeah, I always love being a guest on this podcast. Thanks so much for having me. All right. My pleasure. And that, my dear audience, is the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy listening about food microbiology. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. Remember, continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. It makes you better at your job. If you really like it, if you really enjoy it, you're at your best. So continue bringing that. As always, you know, thank you for tuning in. You know, great things are going to continue coming your way. So stay tuned on social media. You know, uh, download a podcast, leave a review. Thank you for the support. As always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.